You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. What I'm interested in, from the perspective of identities, are people whose identities are made up of two or more languages. In the work of the Council of Europe, since the publication of the Common European Framework of Reference for Languages in 2001, the concept of plurilingualism, or the plurilingual approach, has been increasingly central to its work on language education policy. So what I'm going to do in this presentation is, first of all, say a little, by way of introduction, about this concept of plurilingualism. Then, based on that concept, I'm going to offer you five propositions and their very general pedagogical implications. And after that, I'm going to show how these propositions can be operationalized in the classroom by offering you two examples, one of young Danish teenagers learning English as a foreign language, and the other of pupils developing plurilingual repertoires in an Irish primary school, and that revisits Deirdre Cohen's school that some of you heard her talk about on Monday. By the time I've done all of that, if I'm still alive, I'll conclude. First of all, then, the Council of Europe's concept of plurilingualism. The plurilingual approach is canonically defined on page four of the English version of the Common European Framework. Plurilingualism differs from multilingualism, which is the knowledge of a number of languages or the coexistence of different languages in a given society. The plurilingual approach emphasizes the fact that as an individual person's experience of language in its cultural context expands from the language of the home to that of society at large and then to the languages of other peoples, whether learnt at school or college or by direct experience, he or she does not keep those languages and cultures in strictly separated mental compartments, but rather builds up a communicative competence to which all knowledge and experience of languages contributes and in which languages interrelate and interact. So plurilingualism is defined in contrast to multilingualism, the knowledge of a number of languages, the assumption being that those languages are learnt in isolation from one another and may be experienced as isolated phenomena by the individual learner. Uh, an understanding of multilingualism that recalls what Jim Cummins uh, said back in 2007 about English and French in Canadian immersion education as existing in two solitudes. Plurilingualism, on the other hand, is this communicative competence to which all knowledge and experience of languages contributes and in which languages interrelate and interact. So it has to do with the dynamic integration of languages in the mind, and it recalls Vivian Cook's seminal 1991 definition of linguistic multicompetence. 
Let me make that a little bit more concrete by offering you two examples taken from a recent article of Ophelia Garcia's. The first example she gives us is of a woman called Christine, born in France to educated middle-class parents. She's spoken French since birth. In school, she learned English and then Spanish. Now 36, she considers French her L1, English her L2, and Spanish her L3. She's secure in her identity as a francophone and uses French personally and professionally in her daily life. She seldom uses English, although she often reads reports in English for work. I'd have thought that using English, but there you go. She says that she likes Spanish better than English, but uses it only to sing songs she loves. Uh, Christine considers only French as her own language. The others are simply gifts which she borrows. And then the contrasting example is Carlos, who was born and grew up in Peru and is now 43. In the home where he was raised, he spoke Spanish and Quechua. However, at school only Spanish was taught although Quechua was frequently used. Carlos is a talented musician, and in Peru he was part of a bilingual musical group that sang songs in Quechua and Spanish. He considered himself a bilingual Peruvian with neither language identified as L1 or L2. At the age of 38, because of economic hardship, Carlos migrated to Germany. When he first arrived, he took a German language integration course. Two years ago, he married a German-speaking woman. He's required to use German as his everyday lived language, both at home and at the Peruvian restaurant, where he works and sings in Spanish and Quechua. German is not his L2 or L3. It's become his own, though not his sole, everyday lived language. So if you think back to that contrast that the, the common European framework makes between multilingualism and plurilingualism, Christine illustrates multilingualism and Carlos plurilingualism. The Council of Europe's website for a number of years has, if you know where to find it, had this graphic devised to remind us of all the languages that are implicated in the individual's educational experience. There's the language or languages of schooling, which may or may not be the individual learner's L1. If it's not the individual learner's L1, then that learner will probably speak a regional minority or migration language. There are foreign languages of the curriculum, modern and classical, Languages in other subjects, as in CLIL projects, and language as a subject, so for example, English in our predominantly English medium schools here in Ireland, or French in France, or, or whatever. And the plurilingual ideal entails that all those languages are somehow brought together in this fully integrated competence. And that's where the second half of my title comes in. There's a clear qualitative difference between multilingualism 
and plurilingualism as the common European framework defines those two terms. And that implies that we may, in language education, have to do something that we haven't been doing previously in order to get from Christine to Carlos. In many countries, one finds the term plurilingualism being bandied about where perhaps previously multilingualism wouldn't have been, but I think in many cases it's just a matter of people thinking they're keeping up uh, by using that term and not actually thinking what it might entail for pedagogical practice. How is it that we ensure that languages taught and learnt in formal educational contexts become part of learners' everyday lived language an integral part of what they are and a channel of their agency. Well, I think we do that by promoting pedagogical approaches that are grounded in language use. Engage learners' identities and agency and exploit their linguistic, <coughs> existing linguistic repertoires while extending them. So let me now offer you <coughs> the five propositions that I promised, and uh, looking very briefly at their pedagogical implications before I draw them out in greater detail in my two examples. The first proposition is that the languages in an individual's plurilingual repertoire, although they're likely to exist at different levels of proficiency and maybe, maybe have been acquired in different contexts with relation to different kinds of activity, nevertheless are by definition all equally available for immediate spontaneous use in appropriate contexts. What that implies pedagogically, it seems to me, is that language use, use of the target language, should be central to the teaching and learning process. And that is, after all, something on which all theories of L2 acquisition agree. But rather beyond that, because often the notion of language use playing a role in language learning entails a rather attenuated notion of what language use might entail, it seems to me that learners have to be supported in target language use such that the target language is, again from the beginning, part of their everyday lived language. They have this sense when they're in the classroom that this is the language that counts. Proposition two, language use that is part of everyday lived language uh, is, of course, spontaneous, and that means in the case of the classroom, it's shaped by the ebb and flow of teaching and learning activities. It's essentially unpredictable. And it's also authentic, arising from the interests, preoccupations, and immediate concerns of the user. That has, I think, this pedagogical implication that the discourse of language teaching and learning should allow learners access to all available discourse roles, initiating as well as responding. And that immediately implies a discourse dynamic that's radically different from traditional classroom discourse 
and, grant, and grants a high degree of communicative autonomy to individual learners. Proposition three, the plurilingual ideal entails that language learning draws on all the linguistic resources at each learner's disposal. Now, because learners and contexts of learning are infinitely variable, there's no single way of doing this. And in the two examples I'm going to share with you, it happens in dramatically different fashions. But teachers always need to be aware, first of all, that whatever language is being learned or used in the classroom, learners can't help drawing cognitively on the other languages in their repertoire. Also, that their use of their plurilingual resources may be explicit, conscious, deliberate, or implicit, unconscious. It may be, they may be deliberate or involuntary. <coughs> Proposition four, languages are discrete. However they're learned or used in the mind or stored in the brain, however they may be used actually in the classroom in the teaching and learning process, they're distinct from one another in their cultural, academic, and official functions. Within the constraints of time and context, and sometimes those constraints are quite, uh, quite fierce, teachers should push their learners to develop the highest possible levels of literate proficiency in the languages they learn. Because education is about literacy, and if it isn't about literacy, I'm not sure what it can be about. And to fail to do that is to sell learners short. And to decline to do so on the ground that standard languages are somehow racist, an example advanced in an article by Flores and Rosa in 2015, seems to me an extraordinary odd way of righting the wrongs of colonialism. Proposition five. When the development of plurilingual repertoires is an explicit educational goal, it entails reflective processes that add a metalinguistic metacognitive dimension to learners' communicative proficiency. Learners' reflective capacity can't be taken for granted. It has to be developed. And in my experience, it grows out of oral interaction that is questioning and evaluative. And it's supported by the use of writing to document the learning process. It's worth just adding as a note that the intended role of the European language portfolio, invented by the Council of Europe in the 1990s, launched with the Common European Framework in 2001, developed with enthusiasm across Europe until 2010, and now dead and gone, the European language portfolio had as one of its key functions to help make learners aware of their developing plurilingual capacities. So let me now offer you two rather contrasting examples of how I think those propositions work out in the practice of effective language learning and teaching to develop what are, in my view, indisputably plurilingual 
repertoires. And those of you who know anything about my work will have expected when they saw Danish on the introductory overview slide that I was going to refer to the work of Leni Dam, Carl um, the earliest kinds of research for the best part of 30 years. And I'm grateful to Leni for the classroom examples that I'm going to share with you, though you're almost certainly not going to be able to read on the screen. The starting point in this classroom is that we have two languages. Danish is the home language and also the language of schooling. Now, there are some pupils in the class from immigrant backgrounds, but by the time they start to learn English at the age of 10 or 11, they are native speakers of Danish. And Danish is, for all of them, the preferred medium of communication outside the classroom. So we can say that Danish is the medium of their self-concept, self-awareness, consciousness, discursive thinking, and agency, all those identity things that have to do with language. And English is, of course, their first foreign language. The goal of the plurilingual approach is to help learners to develop a proficiency in English that becomes part of their self-concept, informs their self-awareness, invades their consciousness, is a channel of their agency, in other words, extends their identity, their communicative, cognitive, and cultural range. So English is, as first foreign language, embedded in the larger circle of Danish as a crude way of indicating that integration. And to this plurilingual uh, objective, the learners bring these things. First of all, they bring interests, priorities, needs. They bring everything that comprises their identity in Danish. They also bring an important potential for self-management. One often reads in the literature on learner autonomy that the task of the teacher is to take non-autonomous learners and turn them into autonomous learners. I've never really bought that. The fact is that learners of all ages have plenty of experience of being autonomous, managing their own affairs in their lives outside the classroom. And it's always seemed to me that the task of the teacher bent on developing learner autonomy in language learning or anything else is to take that capacity that learners already have and help them to make it explicit to themselves and then harness it to the business at hand, which in our case is language learning. Of course, they bring with them their L1 linguistic competence, all that implicit knowledge not um, more than a tiny fraction of which they can make explicit to themselves and other people, but which will be their necessary recourse when they're attempting to communicate in English. And without being able to help themselves, all the gaps in their English repertoire, and there'll be big gaps to start with, of course, will be automatically filled 
from that L1 linguistic competence. They also bring with them pragmatic competence in their L1, knowledge of how to inter interact with others and all the other social things that we do with language. And that's something that they will learn to transfer to the L2, which is also true of their mastery of the technology of literature, being able to literacy, the, being able to read and write. How does the teacher exploit those capacities in order to develop a proficiency in English which becomes a fully integrated part of her learner's plurilingual repertoires. Well, first of all, she makes sure that they understand curriculum demands. She does that at the very beginning, and she does it regularly at the beginning of each term and each school year, because if she wants to exploit their capacity for self-management and develop further, they've got to have a framework for understanding where it is they're meant to be going. From the very beginning, she uses English to communicate with them. She has, of course, to provide glosses, and she has to mime and use gesture and all the rest. Inevitably, she has to be ready to translate words, phrases in Danish on request. And she has to scaffold their attempts to speak in the target language. Tied in with this business of getting them to develop their capacity for self-management, she requires them to select their own learning activities. She doesn't expect them to invent them from nothing. She suggests various activities, invites them to suggest their own Activities are tried out, some are developed further, others are rejected. She engages learners in metacognitive talk and evaluation in the target language from the beginning, so that learning proceeds via a cycle of planning, implementation and monitoring and evaluation. Reflection. She manages that work cycle and she monitors the progress of the class as a whole, always with an eye to the curriculum goals, but also the progress of individual learners in relation, again, to the curriculum goals, but also to one another. The tools that she uses are essentially two. First of all, learner logbooks. At the beginning of the first lesson that she has with any class of learners, she gives them their logbook, which is simply a plain exercise book. And in that, they are required to record the content of every lesson according to a, a set of criteria that she provides for them. They note down words and so on to be memorized. She expects that in each lesson they will note down new words uh, and try to remember uh, to revise those words as appropriate. Periodically they evaluate their own progress. 
especially in the early stages, the texts they write in the uh, target language are written in the logbooks because they're quite short. And all of this is done as far as possible in the target language. The exception is evaluation. Looking back over about 30 years of this kind of approach, uh, Laney came to the conclusion that it took learners usually 18 months, sometimes as much as two years, before they were able to write confidently even quite simple self-evaluations in their logbook. And she came to the conclusion that one reason for this was that they were not used to doing this kind of thing in their L1. And they needed to develop the concepts, being sure that they understood what it was they were doing before transferring them to English L2. Here's... That's fairly legible, isn't it? This is a page from uh, Carsten's logbook... Wednesday the 11th of November, he's three months into learning English. He's 11 years old. So the first thing he's written here is what they've been doing in the lesson. Work on my play. He's, he's writing a play with Lars, Martin, Lasse and Helena. And in the process of writing the play, he's noted down these three words, towards, sudden and frightened. <coughs> and he's written the Danish equivalents. And he's written those words because they needed them for the play. And I've checked the script of the play, and those words are indeed there. And he says it's been a good lesson because, and then the Danish, which I won't attempt to pronounce, means we did a great deal. And then for homework, he's going to make on his small book folding sheets of A4 to create A6 pages and then writing stories is a favoured activity. And he's going to work further on the play. Logbooks then are the documentation but also the stimulus for individual learning and they belong to individual learners. Side by side with logbooks there are posters and these are written in real time on sheets of A3 paper and blue tacked to the classroom wall. They serve almost an infinity of functions, but they're used to stimulate, guide and record the learning of the class. So in the early stages, a poster will be gradually compiled, listing words and phrases that it's useful to know if you want to carry on simple interactions. Ideas for learning activities and homework are also proposed by the teacher, sometimes by the learners, and kept on a poster for reference. And posters are where the teacher summarises regular brainstorming activities with her learners on the purpose of learning English, ways of learning English, and so on. In due course, learners make their own posters. Here, for example, is a poster that was written with a class towards the end of its first term of learning English. So the teacher said to them, how would you answer the question, why do I learn English? She said that to them in English. They called out their answers in Danish, which she immediately translated and wrote up, 
uh, in English. And they were then able, of course, to write the English version of their and their peers' answers in their logbooks, which is one of the many ways in which the teacher is scaffolding the attempt to communicate and making the shift from L1 to L2. And then a parallel poster, how do I learn English? And these are the, the learner's ideas. And these posters can, of course, be copied in reduced format and filed away by learners for reference. They're also kept on one side uh, and can be put back on the classroom wall when they are relevant. A learning process then framed by the individual documentation of logbooks and these posters, and then within that framework, two kinds of learning activity. There are learner-created learning materials. Any language learner knows that you have to learn words. Though my four-year-old granddaughter being told that her class in Montessori school was to receive a little girl from, friend, from France, reporting this to her parents, said she expected that she would speak French to this French-speaking girl, and went on to say to her mother, and actually, I know French, but I haven't learned the word yet. <laughs> so there are words that they need to learn. But because this language learning is rooted in learners' interests and identities, they create their own word cards, little slips of card or paper on which they write a target language word they want to remember, and on the reverse, an L1 equivalent or a drawing or whatever. And these word cards then are put into a central resource so that in due course everyone gets to play the various games you can play with cards for memorization purposes with everybody else's word cards. So you get a, a sort of linguistic culture that's building up out of the interests of all these learners. And then they go to dominoes, larger slips of card, picture on one half, word, phrase, short text referring to a picture on another card on the second half. Or picture lotto, which is very complicated to explain, so I won't try. But as soon as you see an example, you'll understand. And then they go on to create board games. So here, first of all, are some word cards. Now, th these were done by learners in their first few weeks of learning English. If you think of beginners' textbooks, you might have dog, ship, possibly, scissors, almost certainly not, axe, I hope not, and Rosette, I mean, that's there because the learner who created that word card was a pony enthusiast and had won a Rosette in the pony show the previous summer. Or some simple uh, dominoes arranged so that the words are beside the relevant picture on another card. Or picture lotto. So you make picture lotto 
by having four boards like this with six pictures, different pictures on each board, and then you have cards, one for each picture. And the learners, of course, learn a lot by devising that, but then they learn more by playing with it. So each of them has a board, the cards are shuffled, they turn up the cards, and the first player who has all four, all six pictures uh, covered is the winner. Laura, this is a name, it's very normal in England, but in Denmark there are only a few who's called it. That was made by a girl in her second year of learning English. This was also made by a girl in her second year of English, the, the restaurant game. You can see how it's meant to work. Uh, you've got to get from home to the restaurant where this man is waiting to entertain you to dinner. It's a game for three people, three women. The rules at the top, if you can't see, um, read as follows. You're three women who want to eat dinner with the same man. The man is very rich and looks good. <laughs> if you win, you're going to have dinner with him. But, 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 it's not so easy. On the way to the restaurant, you're going to do some things. Every time you stop on a question mark, you have to take a card. And I've given four examples of cards. Uh, the top right of them is a letter says that your niece is coming on a visit. You have to call her, go two steps back. Or the one to the left of that, someone has sent you 20 long roses. Go two steps forward because you're happy. Or the one with blue, an elephant and a tiger who have escaped from the zoo. And no one knows where they are. All the roads and streets in the town are closed. You have to miss a turn. Or your new makeup is destroyed because of the rain. You have to find a toilet and <laughs> clean your face. Miss one turn. And, and so it goes on. Now, this, this was a homework project undertaken by one girl with help uh, from her mother, I think. But the game is fully functional. It absolutely works. So when she brought it to school, needless to say, um, when the appropriate phase in each learning cycle arrived, other learners could use it uh, and, and learn from it. Beside learner-created learning materials, we have learner-generated text. The first homework in this classroom is to write a little text about myself. The teacher provides learners with a simple text frame. My name is, I live. And then she asks them to call out in their L1 in Danish the things they need to know in English to be able to describe themselves. And she writes these up um, on posters. And of course, it's possible for learners to copy down not only the words they've asked for, but those that their peers asked for. And that experience is important, in our view, because from the very beginning, it embeds the language that is being learned in a little identity text and associates it with my name is, I am, and so on and so forth. It also provides a very simple declarative structure for text, and that leads into uh, a, a, an activity 
that's called picture plus text, cut a small picture from the pile of magazines at the back of the classroom, stick it in your logbook and write a little text. And quickly enough, learners progress from there to writing plays <coughs> such as uh, Carsten was talking about, stories and poems and, and projects. Wednesday the 15th of August, that's the first day of the new school year. My name's Thomas, I'm 10 years old. I'm a member of the BB, that's the Boys' Brigade. My grandfather and grandmother have a motorboat. Or, same day, my name is Lena Kirstenson, I'm 10 years old, I am a member of the Girls' Brigade. My mother's name is Kate, my father's name is Stain, I have four hens, my birthday is on the 13th of February, here are a photo of me. Picture plus text. 11, 12-year-old boys always go for pictures of young women and then write these fantasy bios of them. My name is Jeanette. I live in Denmark. I'm 20 years old. I'm a model. I have a sister. Her name is Camilla. She's 15 years old. I like clothes, cats, to swim, to gym, and to surf, and my cat, Bella, and horses. I don't have a boyfriend because I travel too much. Or, it's the same day... And it's still Anya's birthday. This one says happy birthday. And this one has shared homework before getting down to picture plus text. Hello, my name is Gabriella, and I come from Italy. I'm 24 years old. My hobbies is to dance and like also to sing. I have a boyfriend. His name is Steve. I live in USA. My sister's name is Samantha. Steve's hobby is to play American football and basket. Or this. This was actually generated for research purposes. What we were interested in was not the story, but the talk, collaborative talk, that the learners would engage in, with one of them sitting at the computer and the other four members of the group uh, around the computer in order to, to generate the text. So it's not at all polished. It was um, produced in about half an hour. And, and they're in the fourth year of English. Before we start the story, we'd like to describe what a Martian looks like. It's green with a pink nose and about three foot tall. On the top of its head, it has four transparent antennas, which have the same function as a compass. Well, let's start the story. One early morning, a flying saucer landed on the top of the Statue of Liberty. Out of the saucer came our Martian with the magic stick in his hand. It was sent to the Earth because of the pollution. It had to finish its job, which was to make the world clean before evening. First he went to Central Park. Suddenly a man jumped out of a bush. Oh, it's you, Mr. Bush. I saw you last night in Space Station. Mr. Bush, I've read your thoughts, Martian. We don't want you to clean our world, so just beat off and leave us alone. And so the Martian did, and that's why our world is still polluted. It could almost be, that was George W. Bush, of course, it could also have almost been Donald Trump. Now, in this classroom, English is, from the beginning, part of the learner's everyday lived language. And in the necessarily, necessarily very compact presentation I've given you of their classroom activities, they gradually construct a proficiency in English on the basis of interests and identities, which, of course, have developed in their L1. Collaboratively, they create a self-sustaining community of English speakers. 
it's worth noting, I think, these three things about this learning community because everything is communicated as far as possible in the target language. The boundaries between intentional analytic learning and creative text production are fuzzy from a different perspective. For example, the restaurant game is an act of uh, text creation. Traditional distinctions between listening and speaking, reading and writing are often very difficult to maintain. And the dynamic of the classroom depends crucially on writing in order to speak and speaking in order to write. Now I come to the second example. These are pupils developing plurilingual profiles in an Irish primary school, and this time my thanks go to another colleague and collaborator, Deirdre Cohen. The languages in focus are immigrants' home languages. I'm sure Deirdre said this to you when she was speaking on Monday, but not everyone perhaps was, was there. This school has 320 pupils. It's a girls' primary school. There are 80% of them from immigrant families. Most of them have little or no English when they start school at the age of four and a half. And at the last count, there were about 50 different home languages present in the school. Then you have English, which is the language of schooling. You have Irish, which is the obligatory first, second language of our school curriculum. This school has a long and strong tradition of teaching Irish through Irish, of using Irish communicatively outside Irish lessons. And then finally there's French because in the fifth and sixth class, the last two primary years, the girls also learn some French. <coughs> Now, a common scenario in schools with immigrant pupils tends to look like this. The immigrant pupils' home languages have no role in the educational process, and they're kept well outside the school. English, or any other language of schooling, is dominant, and in our case, Irish and French tend not to get very well integrated with the communicative repertoire that kids already have in English because neither language is taught in the sort of way that I've been describing. The goal of the plurilingual approach is, I think, to develop pupils' plurilingual repertoires in this kind of context so that growth of oral proficiency in English, Irish, and, Fr and French is rooted in their home language proficiency. Reading and writing skills in English are transferred to home languages with parental support, of course, Irish and French. And all languages in the individual pupil's repertoire are immediately available for spontaneous and context-appropriate use in speech <coughs> and in writing. Uh, and I've, as with the Danish example, embedded Irish and French within the language of schooling fully because that is the context where they develop proficiency in Irish and French. Immigrant pupils' home languages are partly in, partly out because, of course, 
they have a life outside school which is independent of the process. Now, what this school does is to encourage pupils to use their home languages inside and outside the classroom for any purpose that seems appropriate to them. To begin with, that policy was adopted because Deirdre and her colleagues felt that you couldn't claim to be developing an inclusive environment if you expected children of four and a half to leave their home language at the school gate. In taking that decision, they also recognised that there was a human rights issue. It really is an infringement of a basic human right if you prevent people from speaking their own language. They also quickly came to see, though, that allowing use of home languages was allowing kids to use what was their primary cognitive tool. So it was going in a variety of different ways to aid the learning process. They hypothesized that allowing children to make as much use as they wanted of their home language would give them a sense of security that it would help them to understand that their particular identity was recognized and valued by the school, that it would promote their self-esteem because they would see that this medium of communication, which at the age of four and a half they might not quite think of as another language, uh, was nevertheless something that was relevant in some sense in this new context. And it would also give them cognitive empowerment, not just in the sense that uh, I was referring to when I said that their own language is going to be their default cognitive tool, but rather that because their own language is valued and they're encouraged to use it, it is a resource that they can bring to the classroom and feed into the ongoing business of learning and especially talking about and reflecting on language and languages. Because time is limited, I'm going to focus simply on the development in this school of plurilingual literacy. From a very early age, from the time they're beginning to learn to read and write, pupils write identity texts in English and their home language. Senior infants, five- and six-year-olds, get to do this kind of thing. So um, this pupil has written, my school is Skolrija, my teacher is Miss Kelly, and she's taken that home, and her parents have shown her how to write the Polish equivalent. In first class, the texts become slightly more elaborate and, and free forms. So you have Deborah, uh, her name, my name's Deborah, I'm six years old, born in Nigeria, and then we have the same thing in Yoruba. And uh, Nicola is seven years old from Latvia, my town is Riga, I love to wear a cap. She's from the Russian-speaking minority in Latvia, so she's written that with her parents' help. And then second class, the handwriting gets better, the texts are a bit more ambitious, and you get this in English and then this in Spanish. But the interesting thing is, of course, that 
Irish pupils get to write dual language texts treating Irish as their home language because they want to be as versatile as the kids from immigrant homes. So in third class, you, we've got a great collection of these texts about accidents that have to do with falling over and dialing 999 and going to hospital. There you are. Um, so you have that in English and that in Irish. But then you see the immigrant pupils can write in English and their home language and Irish, which means that the Irish pupils are left one language short. But it's surprising the number of kids who then use the skills of an older brother or sister or, or what mum or dad can remember of foreign languages at school, or in one case, uh, a Portuguese neighbour, to help them cobble together a text in a third language. Three years ago, towards the end of the school year, two weeks to go, sixth class, said to their teacher, please miss, can we put on a fashion show? And the teacher, being liberal, said, yes. And you can invite your mums and dads and grannies and whatnot. But two rules. First, all the languages present in the class must be somehow used in the fashion show, in the commentary or however you want to do it. That's up to you, but they must be used. And the second rule is that each of you must invent a model give her a name, write a short bio in English, Irish, French, and your home language if it's not English or Irish. So this is what one pupil wrote. My name is Marceline. I'm 15 years old. I'm in Hollystar High. I'm not that girly. I do a lot of sports. My favorite is basketball. I have many trophies from basketball. I really like the colour blue and aqua. Don't you think it's beautiful? I really love my friends. I always go shopping with them and go skateboarding with them. Here's a small part of my story. And then you get the same thing in Irish. I, I showed this at a, a conference a couple of years ago in London. And in the audience happened to be a, a colleague in the Irish department of another Irish University, who reading that example said to me, I'd be glad enough if all the students coming to us from school to do Irish were as confident in their written language. And then that in, in French, je m'appelle Marceline, j'ai 15 ans, je vais à l'école Hollister High, j'aime le sport, j'adore le basket, j'ai gagné beaucoup de something or other, j'adore les couleurs bleues et aqua, j'adore mes amis, Je fais le magasin toujours. Je vais avec mon ami. Amusez-vous bien. And then the home language, which in this case is Mandarin. This plurilingual approach has a number of added values which we can document in some detail. I want to focus on just two. One is the development of unusually high levels of explicit language awareness that comes out of the constant comparison between languages, the swapping of lexical items, um, equivalents in this, that, and the other language for concepts and words that come up in English or Irish or whatever. And the examples you can see on the screen are taken from fourth class, so 
ten-year-olds, nine, ten-year-olds. Uh, it's a nature lesson, and octopus has come up, and the teacher says, why is an octopus so called? And it was a pupil from Romania who was first to say that oct in Irish means eight, so presumably it's eight tentacles or whatever. Uh, she was introducing decimals, writes decimal on the board, and an Irish pupil was then reminded of the Irish word for ten. All this extraordinary handwriting practice sentence, hippopotamus means river horse, but that stimulated an enormous amount of discussion, which Deirdre has a, a, a transcript of, that goes way beyond this kind of thing and gets into the morphosyntax of, I think it's Latvian. And the other thing I want to focus on is the way in which this plurilingual approach stimulates autonomous learning initiatives. And, and it's quite clear that this happens because of the status and role given to immigrant pupils' home languages. I don't know whether Deirdre showed you this example on, on Monday, those of you who were at her presentation, but in second class on the European Languages Day a couple of years ago, 26th of September, the pupils decided that they would translate the chorus of this Disney song, It's a Small Word, into all their home languages. And they did that over the course of the next week, mostly with help from home. But they taught one another uh, in playtime and so on, so that a week later they were able to sing this song with each of the different languages, all singing the chorus in each of the different languages in the class. Uh, and, and when that had been video recorded, uh, Deirdre asked them what they thought of, of that, and they said, yeah, it was quite, quite good. But they were rather resentful that three of their number had been sick and absent from school when this was going on, so that they'd been able to have only 11 rather than 14 versions of the chorus. Or the, the, the idea of a third-class pupil whose dog is called Oliver and who decided she was going to write Oliver's diary, but she wrote it in Irish. And it wasn't just a page or two pages. It's a whole notebook full of Irish and Oliver's musings. And, and this is a very common experience that pupils get so interested in this business of, of using languages and creating parallel content, the same content, equivalent content, in the different languages they know, that they often write these stories uh, and, and then uh, bring them along to school. Or the, the sixth class experience towards the end of the morning school, somehow or other the teacher had been talking about intercomprehension between closely related languages. And two pupils, one from a Polish family, the other from a Ukrainian, spent their lunch break, helped by an Irish and a Romanian pupil, to create a little sketch, a shopping sketch, in which the Polish girl was the shopkeeper and the Ukrainian was the customer. And they then presented themselves uh, at Deirdre's office door, because she always had a video camera ready for these things. They performed the sketch in which the Polish girl sold the Ukrainian girl her coat. And again, I don't know whether Deirdre showed you the example of Sinead, the girl from a Nigerian family. When Deirdre retired a couple of years ago, 
every child in the school was required by their class teacher to write her a letter wishing her all the best and so on, but it had to be in two languages. And Sinead had written in English and Spanish. And when Deirdre told me this, I said, but how did she learn Spanish? So Deirdre hauled her in and recorded this interview where she explained how she'd learned Spanish because she wanted to, because she went to Spain sometimes for her holidays, and she really liked Spanish people and Spanish music and Spanish food, and she wanted to be part of that. And so she needed to learn the language. And she went to the school library and found two books and started learning from them, and then got stuff on the internet and so on. And Deirdre said to her, do you, do you use Google Translate? And she said, sometimes I, 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 I use it, but then I, to see if it can get it right. So she was confident enough to think that she probably could do better than Google Translate. It's time for me to, to finish. Let me first of all briefly recapitulate the argument I've attempted to construct. I ended that introductory section by arguing that the plurilingual approach implies teaching and learning that is or are grounded in language use, engages learners' identities and agency, and exploits their existing repertoires while extending them. And I then offered you these five propositions. By definition, the languages in a plurilingual repertoire are all equally available for immediate spontaneous use in appropriate contexts. Language use that's part of learners' everyday lived language is spontaneous and authentic. The plurilingual ideal entails that language learning exploits all the linguistic resources at each learner's disposal. In their cultural, academic, and official functions, however, languages are discrete. And the development of plurilingualism as an educational goal entails reflective processes that add a metalinguistic, metacognitive dimension to learners' communicative proficiency. And I gave you then the two examples, first of all, of Lenny Dunn's class from then of Deirdre Cohen's school, which I think show the operationalization of those propositions, but in really quite different and contrasting ways. Over briefly to the learners. At the end of the fourth year of English, Lini said to one of her classes, well, you've been learning English for, for four years, so how would you assess your overall progress? Now, this was a written task, but it was an immediate written task. She gave each of them a sheet of A4 paper, and they had ten minutes in which to write what they, what they thought. What one boy came up with was this. Most important is probably the way we've worked, that we were expected to and given the chance to decide ourselves what to do, that we worked independently, and we've learned much more because we've worked with different things. In this way, we could help each other because some of us had learned something and others had learned something else. It doesn't mean that we haven't had a teacher to help us, because we have and she has helped us, but the day she didn't have the time, we could manage on our own. Or, a girl, I already make use of the fixed procedures from our diaries when trying to get something done at home. Then I make a list of what to do or remember the following day. That makes things much easier. I've also, by English, learned to start a conversation with a stranger and ask good questions. And I think that our together session has helped me to become better at listening to other people and to be interested in them. 
I feel that I've learned to believe in myself and to be independent. Now, those kids are plurilingual in that Council of Europe sense, in at least three ways. They can produce this language quickly with minimal reflection. But through learning and using the language, they've learned things about learning, and they've learned things about life. So that what they look back on at the end of their four years is a great deal more than simply the English they've encountered. Towards the end of the school year, uh, Deirdre used to interview sixth-class pupils and ask them what they thought they got out of the school's particular approach to language education. Excerpts from what three, three of the pupils said. First, whenever in the class we pick a word and then we get all the people that have different languages to translate it, you find a lot of similarities. And sometimes when we're learning, like in Irish lessons and everything, pupils will put out their hands and say, this means this in their language. And it's quite interesting because there are a lot of similarities. And that makes it easier for you to learn different languages. Well, that's the least you would hope for in this kind of educational uh, environment. Another pupil said, sometimes in school we talk about Irish traditions and some people, like they originally come from Ireland, and they already know it and we don't. So when we're talking about our own countries, it's like when they're talking about Ireland. We'd have nothing to relate to or be proud of or to put our name on, and so we'd be like, we'd be empty. If you know a language that one of your parents knows, don't forget it. Don't try, like, not to speak it. Don't hide away from it, because it's what makes you, you. And it's special, and it's, you can't, it's like having an arm or a leg. You can't take it away from you. If he couldn't use it at school, the child's language would get closed inside him, and he wouldn't be able to speak it. And I just want to say to other kids out there that if someone is trying to hide your language or doesn't want you to speak out loud, you should be courageous and just say that you want to speak it. As well, you can't just focus on one language you can focus on other languages. Well, they're plurilingual, and they don't mind anyone knowing that. Of course, there's been a thread running through this that won't have been invisible to any of you who are at all familiar with my work. What example one shows, which is a sort of paradigm case for learner autonomy in a lower primary, a uh, lower secondary classroom, is that autonomous language learning develops integrated plurilingual repertoires because the, the whole learning process is rooted in what the learners are, what they bring to the learning process. But almost turning that on its head, example two shows that the inclusion of immigrant pupils' home languages in classroom activities helps to develop this very impressive capacity for autonomous learning. 